Oh, I hate to get started because uh, I love to hear you chatting. But if I don't start, then I, I, I can't finish. And then, then I'm in trouble with Josh. So, <clears throat> so we have been in this series uh, since before Easter. We've been going through some psalms. And really the whole hope is that you would be able to sit down with some psalms yourself and that you would be able to take some of the things that you've been feeling over the last year, two years, ten years, and merge them with the truth of God's word and that you would be kind of making this journey, this path toward one whole person, that your, your feelings and, and what you know kind of help you integrate who God made you to be, that you're made in his image, that of course you have feelings that you don't know what to do with and you have no idea where to put them and they feel like they shouldn't have anything to do with a, the heart or the life of somebody who follows Jesus, but you still have them. Everybody does. Nobody is exempt. And yet scripture will teach you not to ignore or box up or pretend like you don't have those feelings, but to look at them, interpret them according to, we believe, the Psalms or the poetry that was written by these who write lyrics. And they're powerful, they're beautiful. So we wrap up this week with probably the most well-known Psalm. And so we'll talk about that. Our thought is this, that we want you to grasp this before we're done because the Psalms can help you in this way as well. Sometimes the Psalms, not only will they help you integrate your feelings and what you know into one whole person, but they also help us understand the character and nature of God. Because it's poetry, because they're lyrics, because they are songs, and you have songs that have meant something to you over the years that kind of draw you back to the moment that you heard it or this relationship or something that was going on. Most of the Psalms start with feelings and lead us to truth. But there's a few Psalms, and some in particular, that start with understanding the character and nature of God and lead us into feelings. And Psalm 23 is probably the one Psalm that does this most powerfully. In fact, I, if I just ask, you, you, you haven't seen it on the screen yet at all. How does the psalm begin? What are the first words of the psalm? Say it, say it out loud. So you know this, and you could easily quote it. In fact, you could probably quote bits and pieces of the psalm, even though it's six verses long. And for some of us, when we hear the very opening words of this psalm, we're transported into a place of comfort and peace. Anxiety begins to ebb away. I don't believe I've ever done a funeral or worked with somebody who was bereaved or dealing with loss in any significant way that I didn't use Psalm 23, at least part of it, most of the time, the whole psalm. And it brings comfort in such unique ways. Psalm 23. There's probably only one other passage of Scripture that's as well known as Psalm 23, and it would be the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, and you could follow it and finish it, the whole thing probably, in the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer. But in the Old Testament, there's... No other passage that stands above in terms of memory or our experience more than the 23rd Psalm. So before we jump into it, let me give you some context, how it was written, David, who he was, all of that. So you know the nation of Israel, they had a king. Their first king was Saul. And Saul was not the king that God had hoped. And Saul was kind of half-hearted in his desire to know God and love God. And so at some point in time in Israel's history... Samuel, who was the last judge of one of God's prophets, was told by God, Israel's getting a new king. So why don't you go find him and anoint him? You'll know him when you see him. So he shows up at this house that he's led to by the Spirit of God. The house belongs to a man named Jesse, who is a shepherd. 
Jesse shepherds for a living. He has livestock and he teaches his boys how to be shepherds. And he comes into the living room. You can just imagine this happening in your own home. This renowned man named Samuel there to find the new king. And he says, I need to see your children. And Jesse lines them up and he looks down the line. He says, not him. Nope, that's not him. Definitely not him. And he just kind of moves down the list. And then finally, Samuel looks at Jesse, the rest of the family, he says, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse says, there is still the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching the what? Sheep and the goats. And of course, you may know that this is David he's speaking of. David, the shepherd, who would become the shepherd king of Israel. And David knows something about sheep. He knows something about what it means to be led. And he knows how it works out in the wild. He had tended his own flocks. And so when he begins to write Psalm 23, we don't know how old he was, but most theologians and scholars believe that David was probably in the twilight of his life, looking back on a life of, of incredible successes and victories and some horrific failures, and also a childhood, boyhood experience of being out in the wild, tending his own flock, given to him by his own shepherd father, where he learned the basics of survival in the wild, how to take care of those who were completely dependent on him. He was a shepherd at heart, but he also had a heart after God and God alone. And so at some point in his life, probably near the end, he sits down and he writes this song about what it means to be cared for and protected by God. And when he does, he writes the words that you and I just referenced. Let's say it together, all of us. This is the English Standard Version, probably close to the King James Version that most of you heard if you were growing up in that kind of church. But we'll say it together. Are you ready? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's poetic and it's beautiful. And immediately, We sense all of the ideas that will come later in the psalm. Protection, God leading us, God taking care of us. It's what I want. I desperately want it. I need it. You do too. You've been in the wild. We have been through all kinds of experiences in our lives, but to have God's loving and tender care is what we most desperately long for deep within our hearts. Then the psalm goes on to describe what that looks like. If the Lord is your shepherd, he says this, these are the kinds of things you and I can count on. I have all that I need, NLT, a different translation, a little more modern, contemporary, maybe just to catch us off guard and help us see these ideas in a new way. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths. All of these things are true of the shepherd. And yes, we are the sheep of his pasture. I will not be afraid. This coming near the the very famous phrase from Psalm 23 that even though I walk through the valley of the, what? The shadow of death, he will take care of me. I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff, will they protect and comfort me. This picture is of the shepherd and his tools. When David was a shepherd, these were the only tools he had. A rod, a straight stick, strong, very hard wood, and a a shepherd's crook that he could use. Both of them working as tools. Shepherds today, modern-day shepherds, they carry a few other things, like a rifle, 
right? Various other things that they need. It's modern day. They have the tools that are at their disposal, but not David. He had these tools. The book I remember seeing on my dad's shelf when I was growing up about the 23rd Psalm is a really old book. It's written by a man named Philip Keller decades ago. It's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Has anybody ever seen the book? You're, yeah, it's a little tiny paperback, very devotional in nature. I remember reading parts of it uh, from my dad's copy, and it's about a man who decades ago saved up all he could as he was working as a young man, but then bought his own flock of sheep, 30 little ewe lambs that he would tend to himself. He was a follower of Jesus, and he reflected on Psalm 23, and he wrote about his experience as a real-life shepherd and how it reflects and connects to the 23rd Psalm, thousands of years before he owned his sheep. And he describes this rod and the staff, and he would be walking along with his sheep. He's guiding them from one meadow to another meadow, and as, as the owner of the sheep, he would need to direct some, and if he directed some, the rest would follow. It's what sheep do for good or for bad. But all he would have to do is take this rod and put it on the shoulder of one of the sheep and just gently push, and that sheep would walk in a very specific path, guided by this rod. It's the promise of Psalm 23, that God will guide you, that you can be walking down a path that is dangerous, not intended for you, will lead you to certain ruin, but God can gently with his rod or his staff, whatever is handy, guide you down a different way, and he does. And then he says, you honor me by anointing my head with oil, and then he says, my cup, and this is not all the psalm, just bits and pieces, my cup overflows with blessings. And I read this characterization of what it means to be in a relationship with God, and I want that. I want to be led by green pastures, don't you? I want to be led to a place that is, a, is away from danger. If I'm about to get into a business venture, I want to offer that up to God and allow him to guide me and lead me and steer me away from things that will hurt me or harm me. And I really want a cup that overflows with blessings, don't you? I want all of these things. And the comfort that you and I feel when we hear the words of Psalm 23 being read, or even people who don't even know Jesus, just have some experience with church, will find themselves in a hotel room and opening up their Gideon's Bible and turning to Psalm 23 very first because it's the one place that they remember something from and they read about God's goodness. What is most missed in the context of Psalm 23, though, is this one essential and key and important truth. And if you've walked with Jesus for any number of years, you know this to be true, but it's a truth that we shove aside or maybe even hide our heart from because it brings about a sense of surrender, which we don't want to do, and obligation, which we don't talk much about today when it comes to walking with Jesus. All of these blessings, this lack of fear, this protection and comfort, our cup overflowing, these green pastures and these still waters that are available to us, every single one of them come only in connection or only because we have a surrendered relationship with the shepherd, the very first verse. Remember, you knew it, you read it. We could even say it from memory. When David begins, he's saying this, the Lord is my 
shepherd. Yahweh is the word in the Hebrew, the the one true God of Israel, this, this one who has made me in his image. I don't just know him or know about him or I haven't just learned some things about him. I'm in a relationship with him that could only be described as he is my shepherd. Now, when I was little and heard this read in church, it was very confusing to me, this first verse, because most people didn't really pause or stop when they got to the different phrase on the second half of the verse. So it would be read like this in church. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I thought, apparently God is a shepherd that we don't want. That's what I remember thinking. My little eight-year-old pea brain, you know, that's just me, not all eight-year-olds. I had one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I remember thinking, why? who am I here to learn about this shepherd? Nobody wants him. You know, the truth is, if we're honest, you don't want a shepherd either. Most of us don't. Now, I know, I know. We, we want all of the things that are contained in the context of the psalm, but we don't, we don't really want a shepherd. We don't live in a, you know, agrarian, agricultural, livestock-oriented culture. Some of us do. Some of us, you know, have uh, animals that we tend to, and some of us are in that kind of circumstance, and we more readily and very quickly grasp the meaning of Psalm 23, but most of us haven't been in that setting at least for a while. The truth is, if you have a relationship with the shepherd, it implies some things. It implies that the shepherd has ownership over you. It goes further that there is a, a sense of superiority and authority. And all these things seem obvious, but they're not natural. Not to us. I mean, can you imagine the shepherd getting together with the sheep and saying, well, we're going to move from this pasture to another one. Where do you guys think we should go? <laughs> but we can't imagine God not asking and letting us weighing in. Here comes a very scary animal. Do you want me to do anything for that? Or do you want me to just let you guys kind of fend for yourselves? The shepherd would never. The path prescribed by the shepherd it implies all of these things, that we are not our own, that the... IQ or intelligence you might ascribe to a shepherd versus the sheep, not even comparable. And that there is an authority in your life that prescribes not only what you think and how you believe, but the things that we do and the things that we choose not to do. This is what it means to be in relationship with the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. When David writes these words, he understands what he's saying. He knows. He's gone down paths that he shouldn't be on. He's experienced the consequences and the difficulty of life when he's gone astray. He knows what it's like to chase down a sheep that has gone his own way. He knows all of this. He has been a sheep and he has been a shepherd. And he has learned it from his father. He's learned it from reality. He's learned it from being a king. He's learned it from being with God's people and leading them as a nation. And he says, in all humility, the Lord is my shepherd. Why? Well, David has been willing to give up ownership, acknowledge God's superiority, and give God authority in his life because of everything else he writes in the psalm. He wants God's nurturing and guidance and provision. He wants it. He knows what it's like to live without it. He watched his son die. And he also knows what it's like to live with it. And that's what he wants. Let me give you an example. 
Here's a portion of the psalm. This is what it says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. That's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it's poetic. It's quite the picture. I, I want these things for my life. I, I want to lie down in a green pasture. This is a beautiful picture of what life is like when God is your shepherd. Still waters, nourishing, giving you all that you need. We know and understand the value of hydration in Colorado. We want to be near still waters. We don't have to tussle and fight for a drink. This is where God leads and he restores my soul. But far too often, if I'm honest, this doesn't describe me or my life or even my patterns. What about you? Too often I'm a little depleted. I'm a little ragged. I'm a little run out. The idea of a cup running over, I don't have that. I've got a little cup with a few little drops in it. I'm going to keep them for me. I don't want you to have them. Restored in my soul? No, mostly I just feel tired. You remember what it was like when you were little and you were told to go take a nap? What a fight that was? How many of you just want a nap right now? How many of you want to be told it's nap time? You don't have a choice. You remember that? What it was like when you were a kid? And now... What happens with the shepherd and his sheep? What does it say? We don't just get to lie, lie down in green, chat, green pastures. What does he do? He what? He makes me do that. He leads me, only if I go, beside still waters. And he is the one that restores my soul. So God's given us all kinds of information about what it means to live a life in balance and in rest. He's helped us understand what it means to take a Sabbath, what you can take on and what you can't take on. And in our wisdom, our human wisdom, we decide that a 50 or 60 hour work week is appropriate for somebody who follows after Jesus. And God would say, you can do that if you want, but not when I'm your shepherd. If I'm your shepherd, I'm going to make you lie down in a green pasture. I'm going to make you walk beside still waters. You just want to run by and grab it as you can. That's not what God would have you do. And so we understand that God is a God of rest and balance and that we cannot take control of our own lives, that we pattern our lives after we're directed in Scripture. But that only happens when God is our shepherd. But we don't want that. We want control. We want more than we have right now. We want to go down a path that will lead to our success or our significance or our importance. And when we do that, the promises, the comfort, the peace that is given to us by our relationship with the shepherd, well, it evaporates from us. In other words, listen close. If you want the nurturing and the guidance and the provision of the shepherd, then he has to have ownership. We recognize his superiority and his authority. We understand that the Lord is my shepherd. I, I like the not wanting part, but I want so much apart from God. I want what I want until I find myself at the end of who I am and then I turn and I want the Lord to be my shepherd. Here's another glimpse that we'll give you. So Jesus said when he was teaching on the earth in the Gospels, they easily record this, 
multiple times, Jesus said to those that were listening, I am the good, what? Oh, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. So now Jesus is going to take on this role of good shepherd in our life. So the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus fulfills this role. And then Jesus also teaches so much about what it means to live under the care of the shepherd. So he says, why are you worried about your life? What you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Do not worry about your life. Don't you know that God takes care of all things? He he dresses the lilies of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. If he does that, he's going to take care of you. And we say, well, that sounds great. But I'm going to sit over here in the corner, I'm going to wring my hands, and I'm going to worry, and I'm going to allow anxiety to creep in. And when we do that, our trust of God ebbs away, and we decide that we are, in fact, our own shepherds. And we don't allow God to provide the way he would. This is the promise of God. We don't want a shepherd. Because the truth is, if we have a shepherd... That means that you and I are what? You don't want to be a sheep, do you? You know what a sheep does. Well, first of all, a sheep is stupid. Who's signing up for that? (laughs) Second of all, a sheep just follows. Follows the sheep in front of him. That's what he does. In fact, this idea of being a sheep is so deeply offensive to us that we will choose our own path and we only lean on God when our life demands it. And then the benefits of Psalm 23 evaporate right before us. There's no comfort for God's people that will not allow God to be their shepherd. A shepherd that has ownership, superiority, authority, lordship in their lives. Because we take our own path. Because we don't want to be a sheep. I was walking around town this week. Psalm 23 was on my mind. So this was important to know. You know, I think as I go through a week and ponder us and our relationship with God together and how God might teach us as we move forward, some things I see and some things I don't see. This week I saw this particular thing, just walking around town in Castle Rock, I saw somebody wearing a shirt that looked just like this. Lions, not sheep. Have you seen one of these? Who's seen one? Has anybody seen one? I saw a few. And so I thought, that looks like something that they didn't make. It looks like something that was made. And so I Googled it, and sure enough, it's a whole company. You can buy hats and T-shirts and all those kinds of things. They even have a little informative video that will help you understand how to live as a lion and not a sheep. And so you could imagine that this company, and if you have a shirt, that's fine. Don't be offended by what I'm going to say. I mean, you might not want to wear it to church next week, but um, (laughs) after I get done talking about it. But I saw that, and I thought, that's so interesting to me. And so I watched a little video and read about it online, all that kind of stuff. And so this, this idea, uh, of course, sprung up throughout the pandemic. And you could imagine what ideas or what concepts or what philosophies of life and living caused this to rise to the top and become a t-shirt and a company that's now profiting off your desire to not be a lion, or excuse me, to not be a sheep, but be a lion and wear the same t-shirt as a bunch of other people who are also not sheep, but also <laughs> lions. So I'm just saying that's what's going on. So... So then as I'm, as I'm reading about this and looking at the shirts and pondering this, uh, I, I don't know if this was me or the Holy Spirit, so you just write off as me, okay? Um, I began to ponder David and his life. So we know a little something about David being a shepherd when he was called in and anointed before his family. There's another little story about David that 
has to do with him coming out of the fields, taking a little break from being a shepherd. His brothers were at war, and one day his dad called David in and said, look, we just have somebody watch the sheep for a while. I need you to take lunch to your brothers. And so he did. He showed up where his brothers were at war, and they were at a standoff right above a valley. And down the valley was a really angry, large uh, Philistine who was creating uh, consternation for the armies of Israel. And you know his name is Goliath. And David saw that. He wondered why are they holed up because of this, this giant. He could take care of them. In fact, that's what he says to his brothers. I could handle this. And he ends up in a conversation with King Saul on that same day that he did this little errand to take lunch to his brothers. And here's what he says. David persisted with King Saul. He said, I had been taking care of my father's, what? Sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. It's little David. He's probably 15 years old. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. It's good. I get, I get a little goose bumply when that is pictured in my mind what's happening with David and his time taking care of his sheep. He's not done. Here's what he says next. I have done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's bold and it's strong. But his strength does not come from his skill. Listen close. David's strength does not come from his own ability. Look at what he says next. The wisdom of a young man. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Strength does not come from leadership. Strength does not come from demanding your way. Strength does not come from not following. Strength comes from knowing where your strength comes from. Humility and love is what strength is made of. David taught us that, but it was a precursor to what Jesus would teach us. The one who loves the most is the one who gives the most. The one who has the most power is the one who sacrifices the most. This is what love and strength and leadership look like. Strength is knowing where your power comes from. And the only power that you and I have comes from the shepherd. That's it. He's the only one that can give and bestow power. Real strength is found in love and humility. This is why David could say, well, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Look, the, the benefits of, of Psalm 23, they only come into the life of the person who follows Jesus in humble surrender and says, I don't know the right way. You do. I'm going to follow your way. I want to do what I want to do every day of my life. But when we surrender it, and pick up the cross and follow his path, then we experience the comfort, the green pastures, and the water. This is what it means to experience being shepherded by God and God alone. 
Now, there's, there's one other little insight before we take communion together that I want you to grab today. It's one that's become very meaningful to me over the last several years. This is the very last verse of the psalm. Let's read it together. You ready? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a beautiful way to end the song. And it is a reminder that God is with us. And so he says, goodness and mercy, that they will follow me. And if you read this and you read it at face value in the English, you might just imagine goodness and mercy sort of following you along the path and they're just with you along the path and they're, they're your companions along the way. But this would be a terrible misunderstanding of the Hebrew and it's really not a great translation for the English because it doesn't help us understand what this Hebrew word follow actually means. Here's what it really means and this will change as it did for me your understanding of the entire psalm. Really, this word follow in the Hebrew means to chase, to pursue, or to hound. You know what hound means, right? Have you ever seen a hound? Ever see a hound get a hold of a scent and go after something? This is what this word follow means. In fact, probably the best word to understand in our language what the word follow means is harass. This is what the goodness and mercy of God do in my life, in your life. They pursue us. They hound us, even harassing us. That's a little different, isn't it? Than this idea that God is just hoping and wishing for the goodness of your life. No, he's coming after you. And he's gonna do so, not in the way you're normally being chased, not in the normal way you imagine persecution, He's coming after you with goodness and mercy. This is the Hebrew word hesed. It means loving kindness. That there is a, a part of God's love that is really better described by the word kindness. His loving kindness is coming after you. It's what he wants. In other words, don't miss it. The events and the experiences of your life will conspire against you to bring you to a place of surrender so that you allow God to be your shepherd. That's what he wants. The reason he wants to be your shepherd is because he provides for you better than anything or anybody ever would or will. He wants to walk with you in such loving kindness and mercy that you are fully surrendered and that you find the green pastures that you long for, that you go beside Still, pure and clean waters, not the brackish stuff that's going to make you sick. He wants to give you such peace and deliverance that you have never, ever known. That's how he pursues you. And so God's going to put somebody in your life, and that somebody in your life is going to feel like they're hounding you. In fact, they bring out the worst in you. They bring out your inability to love every time they're in your presence. And God has allowed them to be in your life so that you would learn what it means to be loved the way he loves you. The anger that you feel, that's God's loving kindness pursuing you so that you will give up your desire to control circumstances and other people and allow them to be shepherded the way God wants to shepherd you. The, the grief that you're going through, that is God's mercy and grace in your life so that you and the brokenness of loss will learn to trust him again. Because even in loss, 
God leads us to places of goodness and mercy and grace. That's how he loves you and how he has pursued you. The story that best describes this is the story of this man. His name's Francis Thompson. He's an English poet. He was born in the 1800s. He's best known for one poem that he wrote. He wrote many, but this one became the most famous. It's called The Hound of Heaven. Francis, his dad was a doctor, and he was sent to medical school as a young man, University of Manchester over in England, and he quit school because he had no interest in studying. He wanted to be a poet. He wanted to write, and so he began to write. Like a lot of poets and a lot of writers, he found himself destitute in streets of London, selling matchbooks to afford food, ended up homeless, finally was brought in into a home by a prostitute who said she would take care of him and used her proceeds and earnings to pay his bills and feed him. He would later say that she was the one who acted as his savior in a physical way. And he wrote this poem called The Hound of Heaven. His entire life, he tried to flee God. And he did so through a thousand different ways. One of them was an opioid, opium addiction that almost killed him. But he describes God as the hound of heaven who pursued him over and over and over again. And he described him this way by saying that he, God pursued him in an unperturbed pace with deliberate speed. That's how much God loves you. Reach in front of you and take the communion elements. Put them in your hands. We'll take communion together. The band will come up and get ready to lead us in just a moment. When we take communion, we're reminded of Psalm 139 that tells us that God knit us together in love and tender care. He made you in his image. But not only did he do that, but he redeemed you. And so with that little communion in your hands, it's coming around if you don't have it yet, just peel back one layer and you'll have the, the bread in one hand and you can peel back the other layer and prepare to receive the juice as well. And Jesus was with his friends to show the full extent of his love, as John writes. He began to wash their feet, clean them up, and they shared a meal together. And he held up the bread and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Take it and eat it. And so take the bread that you have in your hands, put it in your mouth and we receive it. Lord, we receive this gift of mercy and kindness through the gift of your death, through forgiveness and mercy. And then Jesus, near the end of the meal, he took the cup that had been poured out, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant. My blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And he passed this to his friends, and he said, Take and eat and drink. And so they did. Let's do that together now. Lord, we receive these gifts of God for the people of God. And we recognize that your loving kindness has pursued us all of our lives. We declare now that we surrender to you fully on this day that you may shepherd us and lead us. And we are grateful that you pursue us with such deliberate, unperturbed speed. Draw us near to you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. As we sing about your reckless love, we say together, amen.